Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 5. And we'll be looking at verse 8 and 9 together this morning. And as we all remember, the Scriptures tell us we have three great enemies. Spiritual enemies. We have our own flesh. We have the world. And then we also have Satan. And Peter is now turning his attention to warn the church about Satan and the opposition uh, that we oftentimes receive from him. So 1 Peter chapter 5, I'll start reading in verse 8, and again since it's the inspired Word of God, please listen with faith and reverence for God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be of sober spirit and be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. As Peter has addressed the reality of the devil or Satan, and just that the fact that we need to be on alert and watchful against his attacks, it's uh, interesting that for many people, oftentimes they'll commit one of two errors in their understanding of Satan. Some of them almost hold to a dualism that Satan is like God's equal, that he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent. It's like he's behind every tree and under every chair. And some people have this idea of Satan uh, that he's that powerful and that everywhere. But of course, that's wrong because Satan is a fallen angel, so he is a creature with creaturely limitations. He can only be in one place at a time, and he certainly has limited knowledge and finite power. Of course, with Satan, you have a host of other fallen angels who make up the demonic realm, and we don't know exactly how many of them there are, but there are legions upon legions upon legions. The other error is to think of Satan or uh, the devil as if he was uh, a cartoon character that he doesn't really exist. He's got red horns and a a red uh, tail. And so they they totally uh, look upon him as, as no threat at all. They don't think about the spiritual dangers that come from Satan. They totally ignore it. They basically live as if he doesn't exist. So what we must learn is not to overestimate or underestimate Satan's influence. He is a defeated foe. Christ defeated him on the cross. But until he is cast into the lake of fire, which is his final resting place of torment and punishment, he is a great threat and danger to the church. John Blanchard said, we are opposed by a living, intelligent, resourceful, and cunning enemy 
who can outlive the oldest Christian, outwork the busiest, outfight the strongest, and outwit the wisest. And so Peter wants us to be aware of the real danger that's there. Now again, it's a limited danger, obviously, because Satan, as I said, has been defeated by Christ already. And he will one day be cast into the lake of fire. But until that final doom occurs, Peter warns us as to the danger that we face with the demonic realm that is in the world in which we live. So we must be vigilant in keeping a sharp eye out for this danger. Peter begins in verse 8 by saying, Be of sober spirit and be on the alert. To be of sober spirit, primarily, he's probably not assuming they're going to be wrestling with drunkenness, but that's always a possibility. But he wants them to be sober of spirit. That is, don't be numb or insensitive to the danger. Be aware of it. And then he says, be on the alert. Which is like being a night watchman, a guard, a sentinel. He's always on the, on the watch out for danger moving around in the shadows. Uh, this uh, particular word for being alert is one that uh, Christ actually used with His disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane when He said, keep alert with Me. Keep watch with Me. But they didn't do that. What did they do? They fell asleep. They were not alert. They were not watchful. They fell asleep. And consequently were unaware of the danger as it was approaching with Judas and the mob. So I think we the first thing that Peter wants us to understand is the importance that we be sober and always on the alert because of our adversary, the devil. Uh, I recently saw one of these nature documentaries on meerkats. And I think if anything embodies uh, a critter that is alert and watchful, it's like these, these meerkats. I mean, these little things are always standing up at attention and they're looking on the ground for snakes. They're looking for lions in the bushes. They're looking for hawks in the sky. And a few of them may be over there eating, but a lot of them are just standing around. They're just looking around all the time. And I think we can learn from the meerkats the importance of being alert because we live in a dangerous world. They live in a dangerous world. And if you fall asleep, if you become insensitive to it, then you're more likely to become a victim of the danger that is around us. So, Peter begins to describe the enemy. In verse 8, he says, Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So the first thing he says about Satan is that he is our adversary. An adversary is someone who is always opposing you. There's always opposition. He's always wanting to attack and do us harm. And when Lucifer fell from heaven with a large host of his angels, they followed him in his rebellion and his mutiny against God And the result of that is that he has a rage and a malignant hate for God and for the church. He is never our friend. He is our adversary. He's never our ally. 
He is always our adversary. And then from there, Peter says that he's also the devil. He describes him as the devil, which means slanderer. The devil is a slanderer. And the reason why he is a slanderer because he is a liar by nature. Remember what Jesus said about the devil in John 8.44. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Satan is a liar. That's why he slanders people. He slanders the brethren. He's an accuser of the brethren in Revelation 12.10. When you slander someone, you make false statements about them to try to damage their reputation. And the devil is a slanderer. He's an accuser. He's a liar. And he's always out there day and night. He never rests. He's always on on the task of spreading lies about God's people. Spreading lies about God Himself trying to perpetrate his falsehoods every chance he can get. He is a liar, and that's one of the, the, the main descriptions of Satan. He's also described by Peter as a lion. And in verse 8, we're told that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now again, if you've uh, ever seen nature documentaries on lions, and for some reason I'm kind of drawn to to those things. I don't know if it's just because I like blood and guts or whatever, but these lions, they, they are so powerful and they're so vicious. And man, when you see them tie into their, their victim, I mean, they just maul it. I mean, it, it, it's incredible. And uh, Peter has chosen this analogy wisely because Satan is a fierce predator. He's a top of the food chain, if you will, and he is dangerous. So this is not any way just trying to say, you know, no big deal, don't worry about the devil, he can't hurt you, you know, no problem. No, he, he's a roaring lion. He never, again, he never sleeps. He's always on guard. He's always studying and seeking opportunities to attack. And whenever he sees someone lowers their guard, he begins to move in. The fact that he's prowling about means he's always on the move. This is the same idea that in Job chapter 1, when Satan comes into the presence of God and God says, what have you been up to, Satan? And he says, well, I've been on the earth prowling around on the earth. Prowling around. He's always on the move. He's always looking for opportunities where he can do damage and hurt people. He's a roaring lion, which, interesting, in the book of Judges, it was uh, the lion that was attacking Samson that was roaring. So the roaring idea is that They're about ready to attack. They're giving a warning. And basically, he's saying, I'm coming for you. I'm after you. And the roaring just speaks to the intensity, the power of the lion to want to to overwhelm his prey. He's a roaring lion, ready to attack, inducing fear 
coming after us. He's also seeking someone to devour. In other words, he's hungry for men's souls. Satan loves to destroy lives. He'll use sex and drugs and greed and pride and lust. But the end is that he wants to destroy his victims by enslaving them to some sin that will destroy their life and their health. Of course, Satan cannot destroy the believer. He can still do a lot of damage to us. And that's why Peter is giving us this warning. So he's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And just as a somewhat of a side study, what are some of the tactics that the devil as a lion uses against the church, which he may use against you and against me? Well, several of the tactics of the devil is number one, obviously he uses deception. You know, when a lion is stalking uh, his uh, victim, a lot of times they're concealing themselves in the grass. They try to blend in. But they use deception. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, No wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. So in other words, as a tactician, Satan uses deception and disguise to try to get as close as he can to those that he wants to attack. Satan will rarely come up and expose his teeth and his claws. He'll rarely just stand up and say, hey, I'm Satan and I want to eat you for lunch. He disguises himself as an angel of light. Which means a lot of times he comes in in the garb of religion. Or he comes in in the garb of someone saying, I'm a Christian. In other words, he disguises himself as a friend when really he's your foe, but he's trying to get you to let down your guard. He's a master deceiver. And he loves to disguise himself as an angel of light. Satan deceives himself, deceives us, to, to, get, to get closer to us. And when he finally throws out the temptation, he always takes the hook and he buries it inside the bait. So he tries to deceive us into something that looks like it'll be good for us, looks like it'll be fun, looks like it'll be something that will make me fulfilled. And yet inside we do not see the hook. He has buried it. He's hidden it. And then once we take the bait, swallow the hook, then he tries to convince us that the resulting pain is really a lot of fun. That's his deception. That's how he tries to deceive us. That's his nature. A second way that he uh, tries to deceive us and attack us is by attacking the Word of God. We see this is the tactic that he used in the Garden of Eden with Eve. Surely you will not die. He just outright denied the Word of God. So when Satan wants to attack a believer, he'll try to undermine the authority of Scripture in their life in one way or another. Even when Satan was tempting the Lord Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days, part of that temptation 
was Satan quoting Scripture, but twisting it and distorting it to try to get Jesus to cast Himself down from the pinnacle of the temple to prove that He was the Son of God. Satan loves to use Scripture, but he distorts it to help us to justify sin and rationalize it away. Satan is also described as the birds in the parable of our Lord that swoop down and gobble up the seed of the Word so it can't bear fruit. So Satan does everything he can to use a crowbar to to pry us away from the Word of God. That's his tactic. Because the Word of God is our powerful defense. And he's always about attacking the Word of God. Another tactic is just by implanting evil thoughts into our minds. Satan can do that. Blasphemous thoughts about God. Sinful suggestions. Corrupt, vile images. Lustful desires. These things sometimes can just be injected into our thought life. And if we don't deal with it quickly, it begins to linger, then it begins to form a greater desire, and that leads to the dark side. It's interesting, when the Lord was telling His disciples that He was going to need to go to Jerusalem and be put to death and and betrayed and then be raised on the third day, what did Peter say to the Lord? He said, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And then what's interesting is what Jesus then said to Peter. He said to him, he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me for you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. So here the Lord identified who was putting that thought into Peter's head and it was Satan. Get behind me, Satan. He's talking to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Because you're a stumbling block for me. You're not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. So Satan can inject these blasphemous thoughts into our minds. That happened with Peter again. Actually, not with Peter, but when Peter was saying to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Remember when they lied about what they sold the land for so they could get the praise for being so generous? And Peter had to confront Ananias and said, you know, Satan has filled your heart to lie. So that whole plot to tell the lie, to spin the story so that they could get praise from men was something that Satan basically was involved in working in their, in their own hearts. Sometimes when those thoughts come into our head, it's from from the devil himself or from a demon. The devil will plant ungodly thoughts in our minds and then he'll jump on us and accuse us. How could you even be a believer thinking that kind of stuff? How can can that thought come into your mind and, and you call yourself a child of God? So that Satan works it both ways. He injects the thoughts and then as the accuser and slanderer, now he comes and tries to so discourage you that you're unfruitful for the Lord. He'll put lying thoughts, proud thoughts, lustful thoughts, greedy thoughts, hateful thoughts 
He can implant evil thoughts into our mind. And of course, He can also do physical harm. Paul's thorn in the flesh was a messenger of Satan. Uh, Throughout the New Testament, you find people wrestling with various physical afflictions that were caused by demons or demonic possession or something like that. So there are many tactics that Satan uses to attack uh, the church. So how do we respond? Well, in verse 9, Peter says, but resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So our resistance is basically that we resist him firm in our faith. So it requires a firm faith to resist what Satan is trying to do in tempting us and harming us. The word for firm here just means solid, rock solid. John had told us uh, in his first letter that this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And Peter is saying, resist the devil firm in your faith. Your faith needs to be firm. Stand firm in it. What he probably has in mind here is that we're to be firm in our faith on our confidence in Jesus Christ as our Savior. The confidence that we have victory in Christ. We have to be firm in our faith. Confident of that. Confident of our faith in the promises of God. That God is faithful. That He's in control of our circumstances. Firm in our faith that we're relying upon God and His strength to help me to prevail, not my own strength. That requires a firm faith to believe that. To know that regardless of the trials and the challenges that we have in this life, we have this incredible inheritance waiting for us. We need to be firm in the faith and believing in that as well. So that we need to resist the devil And we do that when we refuse to believe His lies and believe God's Word instead. So Peter says, resist the devil firm in your faith. Peter will say our faith is like a shield. It actually will protect us from the fiery darts of the enemy. If we have faith and confidence in God, confidence in the Gospel, confidence in the Scriptures, And when we stand firm in our faith, then we can resist the attacks of the enemy. Peter goes on to add in verse 9, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And I think what he's emphasizing here is just the, the reality that other believers are being attacked as well. Throughout the Roman Empire, There are different experiences of suffering that the church was going through. Similar rejection, similar discrimination. And there's a certain encouragement in knowing that we're not alone when Satan is after us, living in a world that we live in that's fallen. But we know that other believers are are going through similar trials and attacks as we are as well. It reminds us also these words here in verse 
9, that this type of suffering is the lot of brethren of the brethren in the world. It's just suffering is just a part of what we must go through. It's a part of our sanctification. It's a part of God's plan for our life. So Peter has warned them of the devil. And he's like a roaring lion prowling around seeking someone to devour. He wants to destroy their faith if he could. He can't destroy our faith, but he can, he can still damage it. He wants to try to ruin our fruitfulness. He wants to try to undermine our witness. He wants to try to embroil us in some kind of a sin that will cause us not to be living for Jesus Christ. And he has many different ways that he tries to accomplish that. And Peter says again, resisting firm in your faith. Well, with that in mind, I want to kind of branch off in a couple of directions as to how we are in battle against Satan today in America. The first thing I think I want to emphasize again is just what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. Just to make us mindful of the scope of the conflict that we are in. Remember Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So notice what he's saying here. That our battle is not primarily against people. It's not against flesh and blood. It's not primarily other people out there that is our main struggle. It's the demonic influences behind those people. It's and, he, and the way he describes it here, the rulers, the powers, the world forces of darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, they're the ones that are behind the scenes doing so much of what results in persecution or opposition against the church. So we need to keep that in mind. It is a demonic spiritual battle. It's not primarily against people. They are the puppets. They are the pawns of a more sinister influence and power that's behind them. This doesn't surprise us. In uh, Revelation chapter 12, Satan is described as a dragon who tried to kill the, the devour the Christ child and destroy the, the woman who gave birth to the Christ child. But when he realized that he was unsuccessful in doing that, it says the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. In other words, that's Christians. So from the resurrection on, the dragon is enraged and he's off making war against the church. Those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And that's what he's always about. And again, that puts a different light on just the world situation in which we live in. So what are some of the Titanic spheres of operation. And the first one, of course, is that the church is opposed by satanic influences through government. This is throughout the Bible. You see examples of this all over the place. We see it going on today as well. 
Uh, Satan is described as the god of this world. He's the ruler of the world. And throughout Scripture, you find that Satan influences governments and people groups to persecute his people. For example, in the very first book written in the Old Testament, which most think is the book of Job, once Job received permission from God to afflict Job, once Satan received permission from God to afflict Job, he brought disasters that robbed him of all of his wealth and brought the death of his ten children. And in doing that, Satan raised up the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans to come and attack Job and bring great damage to his, to his wealth. So that Satan was involved in stirring up these people groups to come and attack Job. And it just shows that Satan oftentimes can, can, go, can uh, use leaders and the authorities of nations to accomplish his evil plan and, and uh, attempt to attack God's people. You go all the way to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and in chapter 13, the beast that comes out of the sea, he's kind of the, the ambassador for Satan, the beast out of the sea. And he was the one who has so much power and demonic authority. And he's the one that actually has ten crowns on his horns. And he mobilizes the nations to make war against the church. And if you read through that, Revelation chapter 13 and following, it's the beast, it's the satanic influences in the nations that bring about a one world government that eventually oppresses God's people so that they cannot buy or sell. But all of that is demonically induced. So, Throughout the Bible, we find that Satan is behind the persecution and attacks against uh, God's people. And throughout church history and even today, you see it all over the place. You know, you saw even in the Old Testament, the ancient kingdoms of Israel and Judah persecuted the prophets of God. The kings of Israel persecuted God's prophets, put some of them to death. The Roman government was complicit in the crucifixion of Christ and the death of most of the apostles. Yet throughout church history, bloody Queen Mary and the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre of the French Calvinists by the Catholics and the communists and the Muslims around our world today, you find that Satan is employing nations and governments to attack and assault his people. One way that Satan uses governments to do this is by attacking biblical values by legislating immoral and unbiblical behavior and then punishing those who oppose it. Maybe you have uh, followed what's going on up in Canada, but they recently passed a law entitled C4 that criminalizes conversion therapy, which tries to get people to come out of the LGBTQ lifestyle or to help people that are gender confused, thinking there's umpteen gazillion genders and they can pick any one of them they want to be. But if you go and you try to help someone come out of that, then that's now criminal activity. 
Now within that conversion therapy, there are tactics that aren't good. But that law that was passed in Canada adds to conversion therapy counseling or advising. So that if a Christian pastor or a Christian counselor or God forbid, maybe even a parent that tries to help their child come out of that lifestyle because it's a sinful lifestyle, then they can be now charged with a crime and be sent to jail for up to five years. And you can understand why the churches in Canada are suddenly alarmed because that is a direct attack against their religious liberty to stand for biblical values and preach the gospel. What that law did in effect was to criminalize evangelism. Because basically the mindset is if, 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 you're, if you're gay, you're born gay, so you shouldn't try to change, and in fact you can't change. And that's their mentality. So that if a Christian tries to take the Word of God and share the Gospel with someone and point out that that's a sinful lifestyle, but that Jesus Christ in His grace and mercy offers forgiveness and He can change you and bring you in line with God's standards, then that's now viewed upon as criminal activity. And this is where governments can begin to wrap the coils around our religious freedoms and liberties and choke out our life and bring in greater persecution. Now, California tried to do that in 2018 and they were not successful. But that's kind of the direction of what governments will do. Satan can get involved. He can, he can persuade the majority of them that this is now the legitimate lifestyle. And if you oppose it, then you're a danger, you're a threat, you're a criminal, you need to be punished. We're just standing up for biblical morality. And that's coming our way. And these are things that we see. Thank God we still have Christian liberty and freedom of religion in our country, but these things are always being attacked and eroded. And we have to be aware of that. People believe that, again, that... uh, if they were born gay or that if they were born a male but now they think they're a female, that that is a legitimate moral behavior and no one should stop that. No one should oppose it in any way. Now, that's not what the Bible teaches, obviously. Paul makes it clear just in his list of sins that will prevent someone from inheriting the kingdom of God. Obviously, effeminate homosexuals are within that list. But notice what Paul says in verse 11. Such were some of you. People can change. The Gospel has a power to change sinners. And whenever you begin to tell people, okay, you cannot preach the Gospel to someone in that lifestyle, then suddenly... You're denying the power of Christ and the power of the Gospel that can change people. Paul says, such were some of you, but you can change. The world said, no, we can't change. Someone in the LGBTQ community, they can't change. They were born that way. Again, the the Gospel would say otherwise. But you can see how governments can impose their moral standards on the church in a country and began to try to restrict the freedom that we have to preach the Gospel. 
That's why a lot of people are so uh, concerned about the, the vaccine mandates. Because whenever you begin to nip away at civil freedoms, inevitably you're going to bring down religious freedoms as well. And that's why it's of such a concern to so many of us. Because civil freedoms and religious freedoms stand or fall together. Our founders believe that, and I think they're right. And that's why I think it's, a, it's something that even as believers, we should pay attention to those things and to try to let our influence be known. Vaccine mandates lead to vaccine passports. Vaccine passports can be eventually linked with digital currency, which can now determine who can buy and sell. And at that point, again, you can see how things can become very difficult. So how do we resist the devil when some of the attacks are coming through our government? And around the world, just look at the attacks of governments upon the church and upon Christians. How do Christians respond to that? How do we resist the devil when the threat is coming from civil government? Well, here's some things I think that are biblical for us to consider. Certainly, we need to pray for our government. We need to pray for those who are in authority over us. That's what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2. And we're to pray that we might lead a gentle and quiet life in all godliness and dignity, which implies religious freedom. We need to be praying for our leaders, all of them. Pray that God would give them wisdom, that they would protect these liberties and protect the freedom of the church. So we need to definitely be praying for our leaders. Secondly, we need to proclaim the Gospel because only the Gospel can change hearts. And whether the government would, would outlaw the preaching of the Gospel, we need to be faithful to proclaim the love of God and Jesus Christ, the offer of salvation so that any sinner who turns from their sin and puts their faith and trust in Christ alone can be forgiven and transformed by the grace of God. So we need to be faithful to proclaim the Gospel because ultimately that's the only solution. And we need a great revival within our land. Thirdly, we need to participate. We need to participate in our government because we don't live in the Roman Empire. We live in a constitutional republic where every citizen has the responsibility to be involved. We vote in our representatives, our senators. We're to be aware of the issues. We're to be voting. We're to be uh, sensitive to what's going on within our country because we are to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And that involves the uh, responsibility of being informed, voting, participating, being involved as the Lord might lead us to do that. To peacefully petition our government when things concern us or when we feel like those freedoms are being undermined. Dr. Francis Schaeffer was very perceptive when he said that he who will not use his freedom to preserve his freedom will lose his freedom. And neither his children nor his grandchildren will rise up and call him blessed. So we need to pray. We need to proclaim the Gospel. We need to participate 
in our government as citizens. That's what our government calls upon us to do. And fourthly, we need to perform. And what I mean by that is performing good works. We need to be a light and a salt to our community. We need to love our neighbor as ourselves. We need to do good to, to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We need to be looking for ways to, to have a godly witness within the community by, by, by doing good to those who are maybe poor or downtrodden. We need to have a heart for having a godly witness and testimony to the culture in which we live. And I think we could do a, a much, much better job of that. We need to seek a biblical justice for all, for those particularly that are on the sidelines. Now, good works are not the gospel. The gospel should result in good works, but we're not promoting a social gospel which says basically if you just go out and change culture, that's salvation. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that we're sinners and we need to be forgiven and only Jesus Christ can forgive us. So we need to proclaim the gospel, but we also need to back that up with good works and a good witness and loving our neighbor, overcoming evil with good as well. Well, that's one area that Satan attacks us on is through the power structures of our culture through, through governments. But also, how about just on the personal level? Peter, I think, has this in mind as well. I think Peter has in mind the governmental side of things because much of the persecution that they were going through in those churches that Peter is writing to probably is coming from local governments or civil authorities to some degree. Just from the pagan idolatry religious system in which they lived as well. But how about the personal attacks? And we need to be mindful of this as well. See, if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, Satan hates you. He hates you. He hates you because you bear the image of Jesus Christ whom He hates. He hates you because you're redeemed for God's glory, which He hates. He hates you because in His mind, you belong to Him and God stole you out of His kingdom of darkness and He wants you back. He hates you. So Satan employs much of his crafty animosity towards getting revenge against God's people. And what he does is I think he, he studies us. He observes us. He sees our weaknesses in our life. He observes when we're committing sins that no one else sees. And he logs that away and he begins to plot a way to ensnare us even deeper. I think that's how Satan got the upper hand in Judas. Judas was chosen by Jesus to be a devil in John 6.70. So this is all part of God's predetermined plan. But Satan, I think, studied Judas and saw that he would steal money out of the money box. You remember that? He was a thief. And I think Satan used that and exploited that to eventually get, to get Judas so dissatisfied 
with Jesus and His Messianic ministry, which was not what Judas was hoping for, and that actually began to put in his mind, well, you can still, you can still profit from Jesus. Go betray Him and see how much money you can get. So he went to the chief priests and he asked them, what will you give me for me to betray Him into your hands? Well, they counted out 30 pieces of silver. But I think Satan knew Judas' weakness. And one of the things we need to learn from this, I believe, is the importance of being aware of your weaknesses spiritually. We all have them. We all have those areas where we're weak in spiritually. But you need to understand what yours are and be mindful of them so that you can be on the alert and be watchful for any demonic attacks in those particular areas. Satan studies us. The demons do to some extent, whatever they're able to discern from it. But we need to be aware that he's watching at some times in our life. William Jenkins, one of the Puritans, said about Satan's ability to to, uh, observe us and then to craft his temptations in light of our weaknesses. He said that Satan has an apple for Eve, a cup of wine for Noah. Remember, Noah got drunk after he came off the ark. A change of clothes for Gehazi. Remember that? Because Elijah wouldn't take any payment from Naaman, and yet Gehazi thought he would go sneak around and get some payment. Those uh, changes of clothes. And then he adds, and he had a bag of silver for Judas. So I think the, the wisdom here is to know our weaknesses. Because if you know that you're weak in that particular area, you're going to be more on guard to protect yourself. By the way, how do you know when we're being tempted by Satan as opposed to just our own sinful flesh? It's an interesting question. I'm not sure it's easy at all to discern the answer. So how do I know when I'm being tempted? Is it just coming from my own depraved... Well, I'm I'm born again, but I still have the flesh. Is it coming from my flesh? Or is it actually from a demon or something that's tempting me? And I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life when I felt like that I've been attacked by demonic forces at, at certain times. I may have been wrong. But how do you know the difference? Well, it's very difficult. Sometimes it possibly could be the intensity of the temptation. Maybe the duration of it. It just doesn't let up. It just keeps coming and coming. But regardless, Peter tells us to resist him firm in our faith. James says the same thing. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. So how do we resist the devil when we're being attacked personally? Whether we discern it or not. Well, obviously, whenever you're being tempted, flee from the temptation. Run from it. This is what Paul told Timothy. Flee youthful lusts. Flee temptation. If you don't flee it, then you give it an opportunity to establish a pattern which becomes a habit. You've got to flee the temptation. Secondly, 
when we don't flee or we feel like we've fallen into it, then immediately repent when we sin. It's just the importance of confessing our sins whenever Satan or our own flesh does get the upper hand on us. Be quick to repent so that it doesn't begin to grow roots down into our life. And then of course, as Paul would instruct us, we put on the full armor of God and you fight with God's armor. This is a very familiar passage, but just to refresh your memory on the importance of the armor of God in Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul says, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. So if we bring in Paul's wisdom, then whenever we're up against Satan as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, we need to make sure that every day we're living wearing the armor of God. And I want you to notice just in conclusion, just the prominence of Scripture in this armor. Most people observe that towards the end we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Certainly that's an offensive weapon. But did you notice what you begin with? You gird your loins with truth. That comes from Scripture. And then you put on the breastplate of righteousness. That standard of righteousness comes from Scripture on a practical level, being obedient to God's commands and laws. We shod our feet with the Gospel of peace. That's that's the Gospel. That's the Word of God. That's the Scripture as well. We take up the shield of faith. Well, how do we get our faith strong? Well, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. That's going to tie us back into the Scriptures again. The helmet of salvation, which the Word of God gives us that confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that takes us back to the Word of God. And then the sword of the Spirit. And then we pray it and we, and we stand in Christ firm and strong in the Lord. Really, so much of this armor brings us back in one way or another to the importance of Scripture. That if you and I want to withstand the attacks of Satan on a daily basis, we need to be daily in the Word of God, renewing our mind, being transformed by the Scriptures, the Word of God. That's actually how Christ defeated Satan, remember? When He's being tempted the three times. How did Christ defeat each of the three satanic temptations? He quoted Scripture to Satan. And all three of those quotations came out of the book of Deuteronomy. So He withstood Satan's fury because He knew the Word of God. And if you and I want to stand, we must be continually renewing and reviewing God's Word and getting it in our heart, getting it in our mind, because it's going to help us to stand firm against the devil. For you young men that are here this morning,
the Apostle John gave you the same wisdom. He said to young men, I've written to you young men because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Well, how do young men overcome the evil one? Well, they've got to be strong. And it's not just working out with weights. He's talking about you're strong because the Word of God abides in you. That's why you're strong. And if you want to be strong in the things of God and be able to overcome the evil one, then you must commit yourself to a regular time of knowing and understanding God's Word, God's truth. That's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Ultimately, the child of God has a confidence in the victory over Satan because Satan has already been defeated on the cross. The victory belongs to us because Christ is the victor. Satan is doomed. And until he is finally thrown into the lake of fire again, he is still a very dangerous enemy to every child of God. I love the words of Martin Luther. I think you sang this last week. One of the stanzas goes like this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fail Him. And that little word is none other than Jesus Christ. But this is the heart of Peter. He wants us to not be mindless of the danger that we live in the world, but appreciate it, understand it, know that we have the ultimate victory, but to daily put on the armor of God so we can stand firm against not only the attacks from outside, but just when Satan is tempting us in our own soul. And Peter wants us to stand. And he wants us to stand firm in our faith. And the Word of God will give us that faith that is able to stand. And may God help us to that end. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, again, we thank You for the Apostle Peter who knew what it meant to be sifted like wheat by Satan. He knew what it meant to be attacked and to fail the test when he denied the Lord three times in the courtyard of Caiaphas. And because Peter knew what failure tasted like, he is encouraging those who read his letter to understand the danger, the threat of the enemy around us and to prepare ourselves so that we might be able to stand firm. So Lord, give us grace to do that. Give us a greater love for Christ and a love for the Word of God so that when those attacks come our way, we can stand strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Lord, we can't do this on our own. So be our strength, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.